Good morning. The second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapters 17, verses 1 through 9. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground, and they were overcome with fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about this vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? God, we ask you now to open our hearts so completely that in the hearing of your word, your word may be written upon our hearts and we may become letters of your love. Amen. Never had Michael, Sophia, and I experienced anything like this. We had traveled from here to Toronto to take part in the 2018 Parliament of the World's Religions. The Parliament of the World's Religions is the world's oldest interfaith organization. It met for the first time in 1893 in conjunction with the 1893 World Columbian Exposition, the World's Fair, held in Chicago. At its 2018 convening, we were among more than 8,300 people from 81 nations representing 118 different religions and faith traditions. Spanning the entire Metro Toronto Convention Center where the gathering took place were religious art exhibits, sacred space installations, First Nations powwows, and a daily langar a community kitchen set up by the local Sikh community to feed thousands of conference goers. The numerous conference rooms were occupied all day long with talks and presentations given on a host of topics having to do with some aspect, phenomenon, or expression of a religious or spiritual tradition. Plenary sessions were held throughout the week on topics of common concern, like climate action, women's dignity, peace and justice. Walking from one end of the conference center to the other, 
Michael, Sophia, and I passed people clothed in radically different garb from head to toe than what we were accustomed to seeing. We crossed paths with men whose religious practice was to keep their heads shaved, as well as those whose practice was never to cut their hair. We entered indoor spaces where incense burned and an outdoor space where a sacred fire was tended. We were drawn into spaces where silence was observed and spaces that reverberated with sounds from nature, instruments, drumming, and the chanting, singing, or droning of the human voice. It was surely the most stunning concentration of pluralism that we had ever experienced. I think more radical than this, however, was the fact that as soon as people crossed the threshold from the bustling streets of Toronto, no doubt a very international city, into the Metro Toronto Convention Center, they were for that week free and expected to bring their whole religious and spiritual selves with them. That's why they came to experience what can happen when people bring their religious and spiritual selves into a public event. Can you imagine how radical that was? I mean, you expect to be able to speak, pray, and sing about your love of God and desire to follow Jesus when you come to church. But what about in public spaces? The workplace, the classroom, at school board meetings, at borough meetings? Have you ever spoken about your core religious convictions in a public space? Or have you ever witnessed someone else do so? If you have, honestly, didn't it seem a bit out of place? I'm a pastor and even I struggle with this. This past week I was invited to speak to the Swarthmore Rotary Club. And in preparing my talk, I deliberated a long while on how much I should speak from my core convictions so deeply steeped in Christianity. I wrestled with this, not because I assumed I would be speaking to a group of people who may have different religious backgrounds or no religious affiliation, but rather because throughout my adulthood, I've never heard people giving voice to their spiritual or religious views in spaces outside of religious spaces. I'm 51 years old, and ever since I left the South, this has been my experience. And even when I was growing up in the South, good Southern etiquette required no one should speak about politics or religion in general company. If we were to trace its genealogy, the idea that one must leave one's religious and spiritual worldview at the threshold before entering a public arena became a prevailing norm in this country about 40 years ago. And in academia, it was perhaps crystallized in the very influential writings of political philosopher John Rawls. Known for his work on a theory of justice, John Rawls developed a theory that is famously known for its conditions for fairness. In order for people in the public realm to cooperate for the common good, 
they have to agree to abide by certain terms or conditions. They have to act as though everyone has put on a veil of ignorance about one another and even about themselves. Only when you behave as though you know nothing about anyone else's or even your own personal, social, cultural, economic, and religious backgrounds can you engage impartially in coming up with rights, liberties, and opportunities that are fair to everyone. Only by meeting this condition is it possible not to allow some people greater bargaining advantages than others. Wearing a veil of ignorance is, he thought, a necessary norm for a just society. Can you imagine trying to strip yourself of everything you know about yourself? It would be an interesting thought experiment to try to get along and build a community with people who know nothing personal about themselves or each other. Having to read Rawls's writings in graduate school, I thought to myself that in real life, this thought experiment would never work. In real life, our core values and worldviews are inextricably shaped by our religious and spiritual identities. We couldn't be expected to make decisions about important things, things like justice, without considering our core convictions and religious values. Well, I was naive. It has worked. Well-intentioned people wanting things to be impartial and fair to everyone, no matter who they are and what religious and spiritual identities have shaped them, have complied with this condition. And it has become a prevailing norm in our public arenas, so prevailing that it operates now without anyone noticing. No longer, however, can we afford not to notice it. Last Wednesday, Dr. Lisa Miller, professor of psychology at Columbia University and author of books, The Spiritual Child and the Awakened Brain, spent the afternoon meeting with faculty, staff, and students at Swarthmore College, and the evening giving a public talk to the larger community. In her talk with college students, she spoke about how everyone, everyone, is biologically wired to be spiritual. Spirituality, she said, is each person's birthright. There are developmental periods, however, when people undergo what she calls spiritual growth spurts. One of those developmental periods is between the ages of 18 and 27. In that window of time, young people feel more intensely than other times big questions, sometimes existential questions, that have the potential to become spiritual in nature. Questions like, what is the meaning of all of this? What is the purpose of this? These kinds of questions arise especially if they experience a disappointment or crisis because something doesn't turn out as they had wanted and worked so hard to achieve, like a breakup, or not getting into college, or not getting that internship, that fellowship, that job. 
It's during these years when things are felt so intensely that it can be life-saving to be able to turn to spiritual guides, mentors, pastors, family members who will help them to shift from a this is what I want and how do I get it mindset to a more spiritually awakened mind, open to new perceptions, new information, enabling them literally to see more. Instead of focusing narrowly on how can I get and keep what I want, they take a step back and perceive themselves in connection to a broader and more transcendent world and ask, what is life showing me now? This awakened awareness, Dr. Miller says, allows us to perceive more choices and opportunities available to us, feel more connected with others, understand that relationships between events in our lives are there, to be more open to creative leaps and insights and feel more in tune with our life's purpose and meaning. Such awakened awareness is spirituality, and religions raise us in the practices, community, and relationships by which we can grow spiritually. Many of you probably read the recent article published in the New York Times, I think this past week, about the persistent sadness felt by teenage girls in 2021. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just released heartbreaking data showing that one in three girls seriously considered attempting suicide in 2021. Based on surveys given to teenagers across the country, the data shows high levels of violence, depression, and suicidal thoughts also among gay, lesbian, and bisexual youth. The rates of sadness are the highest reported in a decade. Since 2011, the results of this survey given every two years show the rates of mental health problems going up with every report. In speaking to the college students and the community, Dr. Miller posited that it is not a coincidence that our young people are experiencing diseases of despair at a historically unprecedented high rate at the same time that our society is experiencing a historically unprecedented low rate of religiosity and spirituality. Forty years ago, people stopped speaking about their core values, their religious and spiritual identities, except in their places of worship and at home. That means that two generations of people, children and their parents, have grown up according to these conditions. When no one in their lives gives voice to their spiritual or religious convictions in any of the public spaces where work is being done, young people grow up thinking that religious and spiritual identities make no real difference to them or the world. In the meantime, a lot of our public spaces, classrooms, workplaces, board meetings, and so on, have made room for us 
to speak in the first person about many other kinds of identity. Still missing, however, are those first-person expressions of our religious identities and spiritual core. Our spirituality, Dr. Miller would say, is our birthright, which cannot be taken away. And our young people need to hear us speak in public spaces about the difference our spirituality makes in how we perceive the world, why we work in the first place for certain goals like inclusion and fairness, how we comport ourselves in the midst of disagreements, and how we deal with disappointment. Imagine how qualitatively different our public work would be if we shifted from a this is what I want and how do I get it mentality to one that draws on our spiritual and religious identity. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. The story of Jesus' transfiguration reminds us of Jesus' baptism at the start of his public ministry. At his transfiguration, like at his baptism, Jesus' spiritual identity was made known in a most stunning way. With a brightness of light resting on him, and nearly the same words coming from the clouds, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Even to Peter, James, and John, who had spent all their time with Jesus over the past three years and presumably knew him better than other people did, this revelation was so stunning that they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. Given that they were the only people Jesus took with him up the mountain, I've wondered often who and what this revelatory reminder was for. Did they or Jesus need to be reminded of Jesus' birthright? Would this equip them for what lay ahead for the public work Jesus would undertake and undergo and that they too would undertake and undergo? Thus far, they had witnessed Jesus undertake a public ministry in which he traveled from town to town, taught and healed people, Crowds of people wanting to get something from him just grew and grew. We know that Jesus and his disciples felt this pressure and that it tired them. We know that even the disciples themselves still viewed Jesus as a political Messiah who would deliver for Israel political, social, and economic liberation and religious reform. They, too, had things they wanted from Jesus, and they thought they were working with him to achieve those ends. As we head into Lent, we know how things will end, how all those expectations will be disgraced. The disciples will have to shift from a this-is-what-I-want-and-how-do-I-get-it mindset to one that draws on every spiritual resource they have. On Ash Wednesday, we will wear the sign of the cross, serving as a reminder of our birthright, that we are all 
children of God, nothing more and nothing less. Belonging to God, our existence, from dust and to dust, is one with, it's a part of, the grand existence of all of creation. We begin the journey of Lent equipped with this knowledge of our spiritual birthright. What difference should it make? Seeing Peter, James, and John overcome by fear, Jesus touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And he led them down the mountain back into the valley, more ready and equipped, come what may, to do their work. Amen. <laughs>